Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. All recovered. Tip-top form, which is lucky because you and I are on our travels soon. We will. We will meet in person. We will meet in person at the Hay Festival with with another colleague and uh, we will be in a tent doing this podcast in a tent, weren't we? And with a starry lineup as yet to be completely 100% confirmed. Well, we're still doing the auditions. It's a little bit like Phoenix Nights. <laughs> Is it though? Is it like Phoenix Nights? One for the teenagers <laughs> there. Uh, yes. Uh, now, before I, before I completely jinx our appearance at the Hay Festival, surely to appear in its highlights package, I will say uh, that we did last week Boris Johnson. We did. We? What, what have you done in the PLS this week? Yeah, we did indeed. And um, we're, now we're moving on to another head of state. We've got a very big lead piece about the Queen this week. Someone else who's also in the news, though, I have to say, the news about the Queen is generally a bit more upbeat. And it, it's a piece by Nicola Shulman, which is full of brilliant anecdotes. So if you want to go from one head of state, this is, I've got the wrong definition, haven't I? Because Boris Johnson isn't the head of state. No, but he's I quite possibly thinks he is. Anyway, the Queen definitely is. And I, I note, despite uh, Edward <laughs> Dox's excoriation, that at the time of recording, at least, he remains in position. So, you know. He does. The Queen, however, as as you say, is is in the news. And I read a very sweet anecdote about her the other day, which is that she's had a jam sandwich for her tea every day since she was a child. What sort of jam? That is brilliant, actually. Well, I, I don't I don't know. It probably You mean tea at tea time? It's tea time, you know, proper tea time, afternoon tea time. And a I cup of tea and a jam sandwich. Well, yes, and I believe Lovely. from what I what I was reading, you'll you'll gather from the way I'm talking about this, really reading it with the kind of forensic attention I perhaps should have been. But I, I think it's kind of stamped out with a cookie cutter and it's called a jam penny. Oh, brilliant. Oh, so it's not just not it's not a jammy piece. No. No, not just not just your piece, as they would say in Scotland. Uh, we of course have people bringing us jam sandwiches during our recordings but but it's nice to think that the, the queen too um has the tea time yes. traditions isn't it uh should any of our listeners want to comment on jam pieces or boris johnson or what constitutes a head of state lucy i know that you're you were saying we we We'd love the listeners to be in touch with us, wouldn't we? How do they do that? We really would. And I've, I, we, we, I think we quite often forget to, to even mention that, that we'd like you to or how you could. We assume they know. We do. And then the people that do eventually get through to us are to be commended uh, just for perseverance as much as anything else. Um, we're always delighted to hear from you. Uh, email is letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk. Um, you can tweet at at the tls. You could send us a letter or a postcard, uh, which now means that I have to remember our address off by heart, having breezily said this. I'm pretty sure it's the TLS at 1 London Bridge Street, which sounds like a made up address, doesn't it? Like 
what you'd say if you didn't really live in London. But I think it is. One London Bridge Street, London, SE19GF. I must say, letters from readers, maybe it's because I'm a a long-time contributor myself and I, I always note that for me they're connected with people making corrections to my pieces and somebody really nice at the TLS having to pass that on and say are you sure you've checked this fact because we think it's wrong and me having to say sorry are you saying please don't write us letters like that please I'm saying please, write please nice letters about please don't write le- yeah write <laughs> letters about jam sandwiches not about how I've made a mistake is what I really want to say uh, <laughs> let us get on with the show In this week's episode of the TLS podcast, we have a history that examines the reputation of Fire Island as a queer utopia and what exactly makes the French tick. But first, Jack Parlett's book Fire Island, Love, Loss and Liberation in an American Paradise, takes a look at how a resort off the south coast of Long Island in New York State became a destination for the gay community and how it's changed over the decades. Tom Seymour Evans has reviewed the book for us and is here now to tell us all about it. Tom, welcome. Thank you. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this piece, it was a really interesting piece, um, but was also because perhaps for lots of us on this side of the Atlantic, Fire Island has an almost mythical status. I feel like I know it from countless books and films. And then I realised I didn't really know anything about it at all. Tell us about its origins, first of all. It began really in its in its current form as a as a holiday destination in the late nineteenth century, um, and as you say, it's a short distance distance from the larger and um, more developed Long Island. People began to began to drift there um, ac- across the bay from around the eighteen eighties, I think. Uh, when Oscar Wilde visited in in the 1880s or is said to have visited and um, when Whitman was remembering it from the mid-19th century it was a fairly undeveloped place and associated with the kind of rugged frayed edge of America rather than with the the kind of more polished sociability that it would later become known for in the 20th century. And it was somewhere that people always went on holiday. Were there year-round residents? I mean, were there communities who settled there for good? Uh, or was it always a kind of holiday holiday destination? Uh, I do think that there were um, people who were there year-round. And part of the um, social history that um, Jack Pilot's telling in the early early stages of the book is about the interaction between people who were there on on holiday and those who were there year round who are often more uh, blue collar and kind of lower middle class or working class compared to the um, slightly more middle class uh, kind of holiday contingent. So there were two communities there really and I think that that persisted to some extent through the 20th century but certainly there's an early um, sort of um, friction and uh, collaboration and uh, interesting interaction between the holidaying kind of community and and those who lived there already who were more likely to have uh, to be held there by their um, work that tied them to the to the coast and to the um, kind of industries that gathered around the coast including fishing and whaling um, and who later found um, in some cases uh, uh, work and employment in the in the leisure industries that grew up towards the end of the 19th century and and really exploded in the kind of early mid 20th century as well. And then everything kind of changed in the 1930s, as as uh, as Jack Parlett describes it, and, and you tell us, um, and it's all about this small hamlet, Cherry Grove, that suddenly sees an influx of what seem to be called euphemistically theatre people from New York. What made these so-called theatre people uh, go there, and how did the Cherry Grovers react? Yeah, well, I think in terms of what attracted people to Fire Island, there are a couple of things. One is um, that people had often already been holidaying nearby. And so there was maybe an effect of people finding a slightly less densely uh, kind of occupied place in the summer that was just a little bit further along the island chain or just over the bay. Uh, So a kind of a displacement effect that made people explore the place. In terms of why it attracted queer visitors in particular, because it's this um, narrow sandbar of an island, relatively difficult to access from the mainland, the, the, the sort of 
threat of um, policing and of, uh, of of other kinds of social oppression uh, was slightly attenuated maybe by by that distance. And there's a theory that it was slightly easier for people to live as they wanted to live um, in on Fire Island than it would have been, uh, you know, just across the bay um, in these places that were more directly tethered to um, forms of local policing and, and monitoring and surveillance and so on. So... What, was it was it a place where people could already in in already in the thirties could people experiment a bit outside the kind of traditional you know the the then very traditional expected norms of of behaviour and family groupings and things. Yeah, I think certainly. I mean, there are a lot of um, instances of, of this happening in, in New York and, and across America, although the precedent in New York is very important for Fire Island, obviously, because the island exists as a kind of a, a satellite or an exclave of New York. Um, so there, there were there were lots of people who who uh, in, enjoyed that relative freedom of the island in the 1930s. Um, Janet Flanner, who's, who's probably best known to most people for her... Um, letters uh, from Paris for the uh, for the New Yorker magazine uh, went there a lot with her partner uh, Natalie Denacy Murray and and her partner's son William um, and uh, John Moshe who'd, who'd worked with Janet Flanner at the New Yorker um, went there on holiday as well I think he had a house there um, and Paul Cadmus Margaret Herning French and Jared French went there as a kind of a um, as a as a throuple, um, it was sometimes sometimes called as a, as a menage a trois, um, and uh, and began collaborating there on, on making a, a body of photographic work that um, really blurred the ideas of of individual authorship. Um, so they were kind of um, experimenting with uh, with with ideas of shared authorship at the same time as they're experimenting with different distribution of responsibilities and roles within a relationship. So I think there are plenty of examples of, of people um, managing to, to find this kind of freedom in, in the 1920s, 1930s on, on Fire Island, as in many, many other parts of America. So there was a kind of artistic colony that was sort of begin beginning to grow up. And then things changed quite dramatically in 1938, didn't they? Because there was a, a hurricane and then because there was so much damage, uh, there were properties that I'm assuming were cheap or were run down and, and available. And there was a kind of influx of artists and writers and, and people who just started renting and buying properties that had become cheap and, and plentiful. Is that the real kind of origin of the Fire Island of later years that we've come to know, do you think? Yeah, I think it does seem to be. I mean, it, it's worth noting that um, uh, uh, William, the, the son of uh, Margaret Herning, um, sorry, the, the son of uh, Natalie Denacy Murray, um, writing about um, Fire Island in the 1930s, already describes it. He says it's about half gay and half straight. So it's it's notable that there is a really substantial queer community there already before the hurricane strikes and um it, it may be better to describe the hurricane as, as kind of accelerating the shift um, than as um, initiating it. Um, but it does seem to be a really noticeable shift. And I think also by that point uh, that there had been some of what you could call straight flight or something, and this movement of people who had been uh, living on Fire Island for longer and and who were maybe slightly unnerved by the appearance of these so-called theatre people from the city um, taking the opportunity to sell up and move to other parts of the island or move to the mainland a lot of them moved down the coast to Ocean Beach which remains a kind of straight holdout at the at the western end of Fire Island Um, so I think the patterns of ownership on the island were yeah transformed by by the hurricane and um Jack Parlett talks about people buying up lots and and damaged shacks for as little as fifty dollars, which um, it's not nothing. I mean, looking at how much you could rent for fifty dollars in New York at the time, it's it's still certainly a barrier to entry, but it's it's pretty remarkable um, compared to the kind of the, the kind of place it would it would become in the later twentieth century. Then, as you point out, the communities begin to grow. And as as you've said, there's a a sense that this is somewhere that is just out of the way, where people can live as they please without sort of direct intervention or or a kind of social opprobrium or even perhaps notice. But I was really interested in your piece uh, when you talk about how 
the political reactions of of the community there were in some ways and sometimes out of step with what was going on in New York. So the Fire Islanders' response to things like the Stonewall riots and later um, HIV and AIDS activism and how protest seem, and resistance seem to be almost to kind of remove from the resort, as if they somehow seemed separate from it. Was it was this because it had become a kind of wealthy elite and, and even a slightly reactionary one at that point, or were there other reasons, do you think? I, th- I think that um, wealth may play a role here, but I don't think it explains everything. And Jack Pilot's very good on this. He asks, um, well, he, he presents the, the, the dilemma that manifested itself, in, especially in the 1980s, and the question of how can an island that is constitutionally grounded in pleasure-seeking, um, how can it adapt to a situation in which gay sex has suddenly become a vector of, of, of death? Um, and so I think that there, were, that there were deeper currents in the politics of the island that made that situation in particular um, very complex. It probably, the, the first sign of this kind of conflict is is actually much earlier in the 1960s, uh, where there were various activist attempts to defend the island from police patrols from Suffolk County, who were based uh, over the bay, but who made especially in, in um, kind of especially homophobic moments, such as when uh, uh, Senator McCarthy was um, was was hunting uh, gay people in public life. Um, the police force made increasing journeys over over the bay and um, attempted to um, arrest people and disrupt the life of the island. Um, and when activists in the 1960s, um, even before before Stonewall, um, attempted to um, uh, organise themselves in order to prevent these patrols. Uh, there was significant resistance from a lot of uh, people who were already living on the island who felt like courting a confrontation uh, was not the right way to go about it. So I think this you can see already there the, the kernel of this, this disagreement about the extent to which uh, militancy or uh, activist organisation has a role to play in the life of the island. Um, I think it's very, it's very easy looking back on something like the AIDS crisis, um, with 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 hindsight, um, to to see uh, resistance to activism as um, as as short sighted and as as um, as, a, as a failure of political and and social imagination. But um, one of the things that Pilot points out in the book is that uh, when uh, people first began to uh, understand HIV and AIDS, it was relatively soon after. Um, sexual freedoms had had been had been won at, at great costs by activists, and there was a feeling that the way in which uh, these illnesses were being described uh, by the medical profession, who had, of course, you know, we have to remember, historically marginalised and pathologised gay men, that the way in which these things were being described was kind of uh, like a, to use a contemporary term, fear mongering. That it was a way of deterring. Um, gay men from enjoying the freedoms that they'd won at such a cost. Um, And so I think that really laid the groundwork for this really quite complex and painful confrontation between those who thought, in the the words of of a character from Norman René's film, Long Time Companion, it's like the CIA trying to scare us out of having sex, and those who thought that um, this was a kind of an existential threat that required... Um, unprecedented organisation and activism from the from the community. And do you think there there was that 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 sense of almost you know this these things are happening around us? We are on an island. There was a kind of form of sort of self protection, I suppose. A, a kind of if we sort of pull push down the barriers to a certain extent, we can we can stay safe. We can stay contained. Yeah, possibly, possibly there was some of that. I mean, certainly the role that Fire Island had played um, in relation to to New York, it had always held that kind of promise that this is where um, things can happen that can't happen in the city, that this is where you can escape um, these threats that you would otherwise, that you would find in kind of straight dominated um, spaces elsewhere. So perhaps that, perhaps that was there as well um yeah and i i think it took 
you know, it, it took so much um, work um, from those who decided that um, that AIDS had to be recognised for the threat that it was on the island. It took them so much work to gradually win people round to to, um, to, to, to recognising that the danger it posed, even, even once the death toll was 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 rising. Um, it's it's interesting and may, maybe kind of revealing that once once that shift did begin to happen in the in the kind of majority opinion of the island towards the late 1980s uh, that the way in which solidarity was expressed was um through what the island had always done so well which was to to party and to um kind of um perform and and to uh enjoy and so there were kind of a number of uh fundraising um parties um several of which became kind of island institutions that grew out of this uh this period in the late 80s um where i suppose there was a kind of rapprochement between uh, activist um forces and those who'd been concerned at the at the requirements being made of them by um the new terms of of aids um activism so again yeah this is it's it's later on becomes um perhaps uh, reincorporated into island life as as this um as fundraising activism but also um also celebration a distinctly kind of fire island way of responding to this yeah partying with activism yeah, <laughs> yeah. nice way around it alex was saying that we you know we feel like we know it from novels and kind of diaries and letters and things can you tell us about some of the of the people uh the the writers and things who who lived there or bought places there the period of the 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 kind of cast that will be um most familiar to um a lot of readers of the book is there's this mid-20th century um cast of um writers and artists which was a really remarkable one um i mean uh so um patricia highsmith and carson mccullers were uh, two of the the earlier figures um in the post war period who um were well known on the island um and they along with several other women were um a kind of um credited with um really es- establishing um cherry grove as a as a lesbian uh, community in the in the post war years um patricia Heis- um Patricia Highsmith visited, I think, first in 1950 or thereabouts when she was completing The Price of Salt, which will be better known to most people as Carol because that's how it was published in later editions and that's the name of the film that was made of it subsequently. Um, she um, and Carson McCullough spent a lot of the time on, on the island drunk. Okay. <laughs> that's a very straightforward way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> partly something that the island encouraged and I think also a kind of a, a, a self-medicating response to the the risks that Highsmith in particular felt that she was she was facing in the period um working on a um, on a novel that was explicitly uh, a lesbian novel and worrying about the impact that that mm. would have on her on, on her career and I think s- some of that fear is um seems particular to the period but also the way she the way she puts it, which was, if I were to write a novel about a lesbian relationship, would I then be labelled a lesbian book writer, is something that resonates, I think, now with a lot of writers. So there's, um, yeah, there's uh, Highsmith and McCullers. W.H. Auden spent a while there um, in the uh, 1940s and was a, a slightly more ghoulish uh, kind of observer of island life. I think he had, he had aged um, quite rapidly, both in terms of his... Uh, uh, both physically and in terms of character um, in the early 1940s and during the war. And he arrived on the island, I think, in a more uh, self-conscious and, and morbid uh, state than he'd perhaps um, th- than he'd ever been in, been in before. He kind of bought himself a new um, dressing gown um, that he could wear on the beach so as not to expose his body, which burned very quickly and that he was increasingly kind of ashamed of, and wrote a poem um, called Pleasure Island, um, in which he described the place mm. as a lenient, amusing shore that knows, in fact, all about the dyings. Um, and dyings there is obviously um, both literal death and also the petty more, the, the orgasms that were taking place across the island. So it's a, it's a much more... It's it's a much darker account of 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 island of island life and a um a much more worried one um and but he wouldn't be the only one to to take that kind of view of the place it's a I think a a, a literary history in which 
um, optimism and liberation and and uh, and kind of uh, anxiety and morbidity are, are woven very close together, and that's both for the obvious um, historical reasons, like the arrival of AIDS on the island, and and also for um, other more complex reasons in terms of um, gay um, self perception and anxiety in a, in a, in a viciously um, homophobic kind of mid century culture. Those are a couple of the early ones, and then subsequently. Uh, James Baldwin went there. He worked on his draft of Another Country when he was there. And, and he, as a black writer, he obviously had quite a different experience in the place of the place. Um, and it was also, I think, somewhat like Auden, um, suspicious of the of the kind of some of the islands uh, of the islands culture. He famously said, "I do not like Bohemia or Bohemians." And and Fire Island was probably a bad place to feel like that sometimes. The, the book through the, the lens of your review is so interesting on this idea of, of a utopia, of a paradise and of what that actually means. And, and, and I think you make the point that, you know, a utopia is, is very often defined by who it excludes as well as who it includes. And there was or has been at times this focus on the body so much so that there's been a reputation attached to, to the island um, as you know to how beautiful how muscled how perfectly physically a specimen you must look and how that became challenged over the years by people who didn't fit into those categories how did how did that kind of process work well I think it's been a, a constant process from the start really at least in in, in pilots telling uh, you have um these uh, writers who were there who were very much part of island life, uh, like like Warden and, and Baldwin and and also later um, Andrew Holleran as well, who, who wrote the kind of definitive Fire Island or the definitive Pines novel, Dancer from the Dance, um, who at the same time is participating um, quite fully in their own ways in island life, also offered these uh, kind of running criticisms on uh, how uh, uh, people were meant to look um, and uh, and what that did to people's uh, experience of the place, and obviously as a place that's made it up almost entirely of beach, it's one in which the question of how people look and especially how they look undressed is is just obviously it's very conspicuously significant to the whole life of the place. Um, so I think it's been it's been there and it's it's run through the the kind of literary representations of the place and people's responses to the place from the start. Um, and it goes through all the way to, to um, the, the present day. And in, in, in Tori Peters' novel, uh, The Transition Baby, the, the trans protagonist of the novel describes the beach at Fire Island as combining the worst parts of a high school lunchroom and the worst parts of a nightclub. Only everyone is also nearly naked. Um, and that kind of <laughs> captures, I think, what, what people have felt about the place for for a long for a long time i read that one of Auden's problems with it well, all the stuff you said as, as well but it was also that he was a bit suspicious of the kind of worship of the body because he'd just seen the rise of fascism and he was worried that that was akin to what had happened uh in a, i mean in a different way but he was worried that you know there was a worship of sort of the perfect specimen that that he thought that 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 was a dangerous thing yeah exactly and and he in his his I think first played um, Dance of Death, which is I think 1933. Um, he he depicts this this um, suspicious kind of free body movement style cult that that um, takes place so that gathers on a beach and it gives way to a destructive um, destructive nationalism. I think he he had been he had been deeply affected by what he'd seen in Germany. Obviously, as had um, uh, Christopher Isherwood and Stephen Spender, all all three of them in different at different points. And Auden at this point, I'm I'm about to get my Auden uh, biography so horribly mixed up that we will get letters for months. Uh, but Auden at this point is married to Thomas Mann's daughter, or has been, isn't he? So he's he's also sort of been close up and personal with a family who exiled from the European conflict. Yeah, I, and I think that that experience had 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 certainly had had marked him, and um, I think also some of the some of the scenes that were that were later uh, captured by by Spender and Isherwood of of, um, of Nazi families building these uh, sand castles in beach resorts in Germany and placing swastikas on the top of them, and uh, there was something about the beach, I think, and and what 
what he and and his his kind of um his colleagues had seen on the beach that really stayed with them i don't know whether that was because um because of this kind of body connection that the the rise of nazism was was particularly uh kind of obvious on the beach or if it was just that the jarringness of of this situation that was meant to be uh kind of liberal and leisurely um being inflected by um by nazism but it definitely the encounter with Nazism on the beach seems to have been a, a really uh, a shocking and lasting thing for for Auden. And so, yeah, I'm not, and yet yeah, it's perhaps unsurprising that he would subsequently develop this um, this a special suspicion of the revealed body with all of the um, all of the associations that it that it had in Germany, but that, that it also had in you know America and um, and and Britain and uh, throughout kind of North Atlantic cultures. Uh, um, Parlet mentions uh, the work of William Sheldon and his his bodily typology of mesomorph, endomorph, and exomorph, and that's in the 1940s. And Sheldon is suggesting that different body types can um, can be indicative of um, of different levels of propensity to crime, of oh, different blimey. kinds of intelligence, and so on. So yeah, and is you know a popular guy yeah. in the 1940s. So. That would make you worry on the beach, wouldn't it? <laughs> Someone pointed at you and said, don't do shoplifting. Exactly, yeah. I must say, you know, more prosaically and, and less ideologically, horrifically, I'm just incredibly <laughs> anxious for WH Jordan's incredibly freckly and pale skin. Maybe this is because I live in Ireland. It's just, we're not a country of sun worshippers. But, I mean, you'd think he'd burn to a frazzle instantly. So I see about his dressing gown. Uh, and But he must have been an absolute sort of fish out of water. You know, sorry for the pun. Uh, in in so many ways, yeah, and I think there's this there's there's also a, a thread of pilots, but which is about the interaction of, of of British people with um with Fire Island and and pilots British, and he um began visiting Fire Island when he was um working on a PhD in in New York, and I think he's very attentive to this sort of the appearance that British people have often had on the island, even if they're really enjoying it of being sort of strangely out of place. You've got Alden in his dressing gown and then also Hockney, who is really overdressed, I think, throughout his whole time there, kind of um, wearing full suits on the beach. And uh, <laughs> and subsequently, um, Derek Jarman as well, who I think um, had a, a kind of uh, a more complicated relationship with the island. He described it as having a deadly, well-heeled monotony being populated by admin and lawyers tanned ombre solaire workout muscles and faces wrinkled by overexposure to the December sunray lamps. So he ended up um, finding his niche in uh, Dungeness instead, I guess. It was a bit a bit different, I think, from yeah. Fire Island. I'm feeling the, the title of that fall song coming to me, British People in Hot Weather. And of course, you see, I started wanting to talk about the incredible sort of exotic appeal of Fire Island. And I've, I finished talking about sunburn just tell us about the island now i mean you make the point that there are other forces uh that are at work now well yeah i think once prep became available and the worst of the the aids crisis was over there was a kind of a a, a renaissance of of fire island uh life and it became a very popular part of the gay circuit in the in the 90s and has kind of continued to be a very popular destination with a younger generation of people in the in the 2000s um, it, it is, I think, a sometimes exclusive and prohibitively um, expensive place. But I think also it's it's important to not place a, an a special burden on Fire Island um, as a as a queer space being inclusive. You know, any more than we would place that burden on any other non queer mm. space. Um, and Esther Newton, a, a historian of the island, has suggested that the record of white exclusionism on the island has been, in her words, no worse than heterosexual resorts and probably better than most. I was going to ask about that because, as Alex said, it's there are often exclusions. And in fact, we're just talking about, you know, white British people at the beach. You're right. It's not, why does Fire Island have to be more inclusive than anywhere else? But you're saying it certainly wasn't worse. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And I think that one of the reasons that people have been increasingly cautious about using the word utopia is because as soon as you use it you have to make all of these caveats explaining that of course it, yeah. it wasn't properly utopian in any way and, and that's the significance of of Jack Parlett's um, uh, decision to treat utopia more broadly you know in, include the, consider it as a as a category that's not simply optimistic but that also expresses things about the oversight of those who are designing it 
Um, so, so yeah, I, I think I think that is a, it's, it's important not to not to overstate that that part of it. And um, uh, I think it clearly there clearly are significant barriers to to entry. Um, but I think for a lot of people who who go there, it remains really um, significant as a, a as a place in which they can be part of a queer majority. And I think Pilot has a line about it where he says that you can put aside the baggage of a deviant identity. And that remains that remains very important for those who go there um, in spite of the, the, the continuing struggle to, to you know, um, increase access um, both in kind of in, in racial and, and class uh, terms, um, which is, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if that's a if that's a battle that can can be really won. It's a worldwide battle. It's a big battle that one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> from from Fire Island to Whitstable, we may say <laughs> to Dungeness. Yeah. The gentrification uh, continues apace everywhere. But um, that was a really fascinating portrait of somewhere that still, you know, with all those caveats, just still has clearly such a fascinating history. Another of which I knew anything about. You would recommend this this book, Tom? Yes, I absolutely would do. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really a terrific account. It manages to weave. I think it advertises itself as a sort of a literary history, but it's really much broader than that. There's there's literature and film and, and mm. biography and some architecture. It's um, you know, a strange and and wonderful place in terms of architecture that manages to combine the sort of um, defanged modernism of the east coast with the the camp role play of the west coast and so there are all these all these strands to it and and also this personal strand of of pilot's own interaction with with the island during his time in in new york so um yeah it's really wonderful it's a it's a it's a great and um and and pacey and and complex read i'm sold and lucy perhaps we'll have a a tls outing there Um, Tom, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Still to come on the show, we take a look at the forces and factors that have shaped French consciousness throughout the centuries. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, we have a couple of pages in the paper this week focusing on France and the French. Reviews of a proposed definition of the French mind, no less. An adventure history around the country and across the ages. And a look back at the French aristocrat who became one of democracy's staunchest defenders. So for this panoramic view and maybe a glimpse into what's going on in France right now, let's turn to our French editor and friend of the podcast, Russell Williams, who joins us from Paris. Russell, thank you very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you both. What's uh, what's the weather like? It's been actually uh, hailstorms and lightning here today. I bet it's nicer in Paris. Oh, it's 40 degrees sunshine. No, it's been chucking it down the last couple of days. So I'm really sorry to disappoint you. Oh, OK. No, no, I feel actually slightly better in, a, <laughs> in an unkind kind of way. So the first of these books that we're talking about in this little um, French section we've got is just called The French Mind by Peter Watson. It, it is, in fact, an attempt to define the French mind, isn't it? It really is. It's one of those books that appear every so often, I think, that, 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 that purport to kind of reveal a secret or some kind of hidden knowledge about how the French tick. What is it that makes a French person? What is it that makes them so different from the British? What makes them so different from, from everybody else? And uh, Peter Watson, in his book, as, as, as reviewed gloriously by, um, by, by Neil Badminton, um, picks his starting point as... Well, he he begins to answer the question through the notion of the literary salon, and he 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 uses the salon as a as a as a lens or as a starting point through which which to kind of answer the question or to try and answer the question: What is it that makes the French tick? How do they think? What is French thought? Why is it different from other kinds of thought? Um, and I'm fascinated by this idea of the salon because um, Watson. Kind of, kind of, kind of locates the birth of the literary salon somewhere around the 17th century and says it kind of finishes up some point in the 1990s. I've never been invited to a literary salon and I'd really like to be. <laughs> oh, Russell, the 1990s it does seem quite late, actually. Uh, I thought that. And I think the, pro- the problem is the minute you say you want to be invited, they won't invite you. It's that kind of a thing, no. isn't it, the literary salon? Well, well, well it is. I, 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 I sit around and I'm kind of waiting for my little printed card to arrive via the Paris pneumatic post system and then to be whisked off in a carriage to you know the gilded changes to meet proust well, yeah. yeah i don't think that a printed card arrives at all i imagine a jackdaw flies in with with an invitation between its beak or something like that well yeah you know like <laughs> at the very least you'd expect a trained bird um <laughs> but 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 then but then you know isn't isn't what we're doing now actually isn't the tls podcast a kind of literary salon of which you are the you know the refined enigmatic kind of hosts Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> this you. is very much what we argue every week as Lucy and I petition our our masters and mistresses for a dress allowance. Not yet forthcoming. <laughs> and, I mean, he says it's about, yes, in the sense that, you know, something's a salon if people are, I suppose, if they're talking seriously about things of the mind, maybe. I mean, Watson seems to say it's about a certain kind of intellectual 
virtualism. I don't know if that's quite the right word. And 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 also sociability. Is that right? I think it is. I, I, I think it's the idea of community. I think it's the idea of sociability. I think it's the idea of kind of, you know, being amongst people um, who like talking about ideas. But he also kind of links it in, in, and I think this is really fascinating, in a kind of historical moment, kind of arguing that, well, France has got a bit of a chip on its shoulder because of, you know, military defeats and embarrassments over the last couple of hundred years. So it feels like it's got a point to prove. And maybe, maybe there's also kind of something, some kind of kind of, you know, football team mentality of kind of people kind of feeling that they have to defend, you know, these certain ideas. And, you know, there's um, community through contestation, perhaps to a certain extent. It's very definitely not one of those ones that says, because some of those books about how, what make the French tick is, is it just says, oh, the women don't eat carbs or something. It's very <laughs> much, we're very much not on that level, are we? No, no, th- th- this, this is very much a story of, 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 of the French mind. Um, but I think it's an approachable one. I think it's a readable one. I think it's, um, you know, certainly a very colourful one as well, though, which I think is really nice. The other book under review um, that's 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 in this this same review by Neil Babington is called France: An Adventure History by Graham Robb. It's a completely different approach, isn't it? In a sense, because it's wheels on the ground, as it were. It, it certainly is wheels on the ground, and for all of the kind of you know. I, I, for, for all of the um the 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 closed doors of the literary salon um in the Watson in the Rob who has over the last kind of 10 years become I think one of the kind of foremost storytellers about kind of you know about modern and contemporary or, or French history um it, it's described as a, a very much a, as an adventure story or, or an adventure history um as you say Lucy you know it's a Graham Robb telling stories about his own voyages around around France on his bike kind of Kind of like, um, uh, kind of like Rick Stein, um, but, but 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 on a bike and kind of not 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 focusing on the food. Um, this kind of notion of him kind of like traveling around, meeting people, um, but kind of you know finding the stories that you don't get in the textbooks, finding stories mm. about about weird stones that might have existed on on maps, and then he'll go off and he'll cycle, clad in light critter, kind of investigate exactly what's going on um, with this kind of you know these kind of strange kind of moments on, 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 in these kind of places in France that nobody ever visits. It could almost be something that you could use as a guide. I mean, you could, if were you in that locale on your holidays or travels, you could you could go and see these places too and, and understand a little bit more about them. If, if you wanted to spend your holidays, you know, visiting kind of uninspiring rocks in the middle of fields, then yeah, yeah, yeah you, you know, you, you certainly could. <laughs> there would be an element of that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I always find Rob interesting kind of, you know, for, 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 for the little stories that, that, that he uncovers and, and maybe in trying to retrace his steps, you might kind of find your own kind of find your own adventures. I don't know. It's kind of about sort of deep history, isn't it? As much as landscape and people, it's, it does. Is, I, mean, I get the impression that he's, he looks at the traces that history leaves on a particular area. So he jumps about, the review says, from the 14th century to 1914 to... Is that right? It's almost like the idea of a palimpsest, you know, the, the, the idea of kind of looking for, for, for traces of history that kind of... You know that 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 persistent to the present, um, but also you can you know be, by by following threads you can end up in places that you kind of don't necessarily expect to. So this is um, a, a kind of a approach to kind of history. Um, to, to, to the telling of history that kind of eschews any kind of linearity. So it is a, you know, it, it, it is a bit of a wild ride, but it, it, it's, it's a wild ride that, that, that is all kind of framed or presented through, through the kind of really kind of nice um, and a little bit kind of idiosyncratic and kind of unusual personality of Graham Robb. Um, as well as he's very much first and forefront in this and I I think part of that it's really nice that it was Neil Badminton um, who did this review because Neil Badminton is himself um, a big scholar of um, of uh, of Roland Barthes Um, and and Barthes the 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 philosopher and thinker who 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 kind of didn't shy away 
particularly in his later work, from putting his own personality, the, the personality of, of Roland Barthes at the heart, mm. of, the heart of his his own writing. So I, I think kind of, you know, Graham Robb is, is somehow a kind of, you know, channeling, channeling Barthes. And I think I think Badminton is kind of, you know, channeling Barthes, you know, um, very much as well in doing this. And the next review, the next book, is in a way a more straightforward one in that it's a biography, The Man Who Understood Democracy by Olivier Zuntz. Um, and that's a life of Alexis de Tocqueville, whose name is always linked with the idea of democracy. And he had this, I hadn't quite realised, his life story had a kind of extraordinary arc, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, I, I, I think it's fascinating to read about Alexis de Tocqueville's life because I've only ever encountered him in, in, in discussions of democracy or conversations about American politics or about French politics. I, 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 I knew precious little about the man. Um, and I, I hadn't realised that, you know, that, 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 that he was, um, you know, uh, uh, as, as aristocratic as he was. Um, I also hadn't realised that there was more to his bow than than than, than just um, democracy in America. I hadn't realised that he you know he he thought hard um, about Algeria. I hadn't realised that um, you know that he had um, you know he, his thinking was kind of infused kind of w- w- with French politics in, in quite the same way. But then again, I, I'm I'm certainly not um, a political um, philosopher. But I love the idea that Tocqueville in his mid twenties kind of went off, went off to the US on, on, on this fact-finding mission. I, kind of, I was trying to think what, what, what I would have done in, in my mid-twenties, and it certainly wouldn't have been a, a political fact-finding <laughs> mission with my best mate. Um, <laughs> I think you would, have, you would have redrawn the idea of democracy and taken it back to your homeland and uh, seen how it played out. I don't think I would have done anything worthwhile whatsoever at all. <laughs> no. I oh, Russell, <laughs> stop. I'm just uh, chiming in here with the with a with a, a fiction edition, which is to say, you did want to know more about it. I think there's a Peter Carey novel uh, about uh, De Tocqueville, isn't there? Um, Parrot and Olivier in America. Oh yes, I yes, that's it, right. It is called. So if you wanted a sort of fictional treatment, and Carey is always yeah. really, really good at sort of fictionalizing strange episodes and biographies mm. throughout history. Uh, but I, I I throw that in. That's a brilliant reminder, and and it's just it's just it's just his extraordinary background because a lot of his family, his I think it's his grandfather's generation, his mother and father were in prison, were they during the the revolution? And a lot of his grandfather's family were were guillotined. I mean, a proper aristocratic family, mm-hmm. and this is what happened. And nonetheless. He he goes off, as you say, Russell, on his on his fact finding mission and becomes convinced that democracy is the only answer and works very, very hard back in France for a long time to try and promote it. And there's all the all the, the kings come back and then they don't like that king. I had to I had to brush up on my French history and it's it my it's pretty sketchy, I'm afraid. But the thing that I had forgotten and I was amazed by was that de Tocqueville retreated more or less from public life, where he'd been very active, when another Bonaparte, Napoleon's nephew, staged a coup in, in 1852 and overturned everybody's efforts to bring about fair and democratic elections in which that very Bonaparte had been elected and just declared himself emperor again. I hadn't realised that it was such a cyclical thing. What you're saying, Lucy, kind of draws our attention to some quite interesting moments in, you know, in, 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 in French history. But, 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 but the, the bigger question here is, well, what exactly is democracy? Um, what exactly is democracy and what is its relationship to kind of freedom? Why was Tocqueville so kind of committed to this um, to this idea? But then what can you know, what can his ideas tell us now? So we have to look back to look forward. Um, and I'm sure as uh, uh, this is what Steve Sawyer um, would, 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 would certainly want us to kind of take out of this. Yes, Steve Sawyer is the, review, is the reviewer of the book. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's kind of interesting that what, one of the things that he underlines in this review is that, that, that what we learn about Tocqueville's life and what he saw in the US was actually some of the stuff that he kind of chose to ignore as well. You know, and, and mm. some, some of the, the issues such as, you know, industrialization, corporal punishment, slavery, the, the, the kind of don't form part of his kind of, you know, um, his kind of commitment to democracy that are kind of the, that go hand in hand with, the, you know, with, with, with certain parts of democracy. There's a dark side mm. as well. 
Mm. And, and and also he had he had as you say he he had lots of thoughts about Algeria didn't he he was very concerned with all that and it seems relevant that we're kind of talking about it now because you know this this year is sixty years since um, the end of the, uh, the 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 French kind of colonial war um, with Algeria and these kind of questions are, are ones that are kind of still you know resonating in in contemporary French politics. Um, and identity um, as well, but I I I, I hadn't realised that 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 that, that Tocqueville had had uh, had been so um, involved in in the Algerian mm-hmm. question. You've done a brilliant segue for me because I wanted to uh, actually jump from the um, from Louis Napoleon to a uh, a brand new political coalition in France, and just to ask you about it because it's so interesting. Um, this there's this brand new coalition left-wing coalition isn't there which has arrived within the past three weeks i would say can you can you tell us who they are russell and what the what the idea is i can give you a little Mm. bit of a flavor i guess it it, why is it interesting in 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 connection with tocqueville well we've heard so much so much in kind of mainstream politics um in the uk and the us over the last five of the last five years um where there have been questions asked about the validity of the democratic structures. You know, think about kind of, you know, Donald Trump denying the validity of elections. Um, we think about, um, you know, Johnson in the UK and, you know, the extent to which certain treaties are actually, you know, deliverable or, or, or legally binding, etc. You know, we'll be looking at the edges of, of, mm. of democracy to be with with politicians trying to see what they can get away with. I think this kind of new movement, um, which is um, has the title of or it's the Nouvelle Union Populaire Ecologique et Sociale, um, which is um, a an alliance that is um, represented very kind of vociferously by the firebrand um, uh, politician um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon has kind of emerged after or out of um, the ashes of his very respectable kind of third place in the recent French presidential elections. And the one thing, um, obviously in, um, in, in, in a couple of weeks in June, France is gearing up for its legis- legislative elections. So in the presidential elections, we vote for the president. In the legislative elections, we vote for the deputies who are going to sit in the National Assembly. Um, the big talking point in French politics for the last, you know, 10 years at least is what has happened to the left? Mm. Where is the left? You know, it's failed kind of in any kind of reasonable um, way um, at the major elections. Um, why? Well, the answer that you always get is, well, there's no, there's there's all these different kind of parts of the left. You've got the Communist Party, you've got the Ecologist, you've got the Socialist Party, you've got all these kind of offshoots of all these groups. Mélenchon's tactic is to launch this Nouvelle Union, this union that is, and looks like it just might offer some kind of unity, actually looks that it might encourage all of these parties to work together with the aim of getting as many seats as possible as a coalition during the legislative elections. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that he's managed to do it, that he's managed to pull everyone together? It's kind of an unprecedented um, for, for, for kind of two major re- reasons in that the, the left has been so kind of fragmented and beset by kind of petty squabbles over the last, and uh, uh, well, you know, probably since the end of the Second World War, uh, if not before. So that's part of the, part of kind of why it's kind of so astounding. Secondly is Melanchon is not in no way a universally loved figure. He is no. incredibly, um, you know, he's incredibly controversial. Um, he's, you know, he, he's an ex-socialist uh, minister. Actually, he was in, he, he he was in Jospin's uh, government um, briefly. He was, you know, he's been he's been around for a long time. Um, he's made a lot of enemies. He, he's annoyed a lot of people. But it looks like you know, there's certainly been a very effective presidential campaign, and it looks like you know that that some of that momentum might be carried forward into um, into the next elections. Is also the idea that that is just going to quash the extreme right that has 
come into those fractures and taken advantage of those fractures. I guess what's interesting is that the, you know, that there are a couple or, or, or at least three or four kind of, you know, uh, extreme to kind of far right parties. They actually haven't found a way yet to band together. So you've got, you know, mm. the, the Rassemblement National of Le Pen, you've got Zemmour, you've got uh, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan uh, for another party, and they're kind of all pull- pulling in different directions. So it, it, it doesn't seem, you know, it, it seems like the, the extreme right seems to have been beset by exactly the same issues that have kind of fragmented the left over the last however many years. Mm. So, you know, but, but, but I guess the interesting thing as well, you know, surely it's not going to be plain sailing. Surely there's going to be some more squabbles between now and uh, now and the elections in, um, in in the middle of June. It's kind of I get this impression that kind of Melanchthon is kind of always, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, not very far away from 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 upsetting somebody. <laughs> we started this, didn't we? Kind of talking about the idea of the, the French mind and the, the salon, and of course that concept has, has you know over centuries been you know well it has been excluding of an awful lot of other communities um of gender of race of class and do you feel that this sort of conception of the french mind the french consciousness is beginning to take account in the post colonial era uh, of different identities and different groups of people. Mm, I think it's a really great question. I, I think you know the, the issues are there, the questions are being asked. But I look at the leading politicians, you know, in France, you know, be they from the left, be they from you know the, the from from Macron centre, it, it doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of diversity there, really. Um, you know, there was. I think I think France is is you know is is it's it, it's 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 not there yet, um, which, I, which I think is a really disappointing answer. I'm going to give to that question. <laughs> well, the, the the story that has been absolutely gripping me yeah. all week uh, is 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 the story with the footballer Kylian Mbappe yeah. at its centre, and that I'm assuming in Paris is 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 you know absolutely top of the agenda. Uh, because it it seems to be on the front pages throughout the world elsewhere. And Kylian Mbappe, uh, footballer, extraordinary, probably the best footballer in the world currently, uh, plays for Paris Saint-Germain, of Algerian and Cameroon descent, uh, has essentially flirted with Real Madrid for some time now, but has this week declared that he will be staying at at Paris Saint-Germain. But um, for a, a quite eye-watering amount of money, staggering mm. amount of money, but also, perhaps more interestingly, a say in how the club is run. Now he's 22, 23 years old. And it struck me that he has become sort of such a central figure. And it has been suggested that it's partly because France has such a good chance of winning the World Cup that 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 the the club's Qatari owners could not bear not to have uh, the French World Cup winner mm. uh, on on their team. But it strikes me that 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 sort of cultural weight that a figure like he has, um, and you know, he may indeed import his hero Zinedine Zidane to uh, to to run the club. You never know. Uh, but that seems to me. I'm sorry. I, I, now I'm talking about football. We've become a football podcast, and I've stopped asking <laughs> questions. But I mean, that is that is a, a sort of you know from from the way that French footballers of color have been treated in in the national game in in recent years i mean notoriously so that seems uh a big shift to me yeah i i, I think there's a really nice moment um in in the presidential election campaign when um le pen revealed or the le pen's party revealed that one of their policies was going to be offering tax breaks to the under 25s uh, and, and then the response to that question was so what you just won't tax Kylian mbappe football is a special space um, in France mm. and, and, and it's funny that you mentioned that oh yeah people in Paris are talking about Paris Saint-Germain people in Paris are not talking about Paris Saint-Germain people outside Paris are talking about 
Paris Saint-Germain. Paris is not not a football place at all. Ah. Um, it's kind of it's kind of really interesting, and there's a, there's a whole load of of unpacking I think that that, that we could do here uh, about kind of what what Kylian Mbappe as a young man of color kind of actually kind of means as a kind of semiotic signifier within France. Mm. Will we do that on a separate special issue? Yes, please. <laughs> I, have, I have lots yeah. of thoughts. We could even talk about the impending or the, the rumoured transfer of Gareth Bale to Cardiff City, but I won't go down Oh, no, no, hang there. on. That, that really is a detail. <laughs> a whole separate thing. Uh, Russell, you're coming back. Uh, we're, we're, we're very, very certainly doing a special on this. I, I, we will make it so. Now, that's a salon. You, you said you'd never got invited, but now you are. No, that's a football <laughs> podcast, as you said, Alex. It's a different thing. And we'll ask Graham Robb to cycle up and get yes, involved as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, then it will be a salon. Russell, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Tom Seymour Evans and Russell Williams. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week and we'll also be at the Hay Festival on Friday at 11.30. So if you're there, join us. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.